Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto One Stack podcast, where we cover everything from crypto trading and investing to NFTs, decentralized finance, and so much more. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell financial products. This podcast is sponsored by CoinFlex, the home of crypto yield. Whether you're passively managing money or taking an actively managed approach, you can earn and trade crypto easily on CoinFlex, which sees over $2 billion in daily trading volume. CoinFlex is committed to making crypto derivatives yield accessible to everyone, whether you are investing hundreds or thousands of dollars and more. With a newly launched automated market-making product called AMM+, you can earn yield on crypto by providing liquidity into the futures markets. The AMM Plus is 10 times more capital efficient than other automated market makers and offers multiple collateral types so that you can earn more with less. Interested in learning more about CoinFlex and trying out the AMM Plus? Head over to coinflex.com AMM to get started and let the market work for you. John Devine, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's so great to have you on the pod with me. Leslie, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad we met spontaneously in line at Permissionless at West Palm Beach. I mean, it was this ginormous line just to register and uh, sign up for the event. So glad we talked the full way through. Yeah, you know, we made it in there. I, when I saw the line, I was thinking to myself, maybe I should come back in a bit. But I got in there and look, I'm glad I did. I got to meet you and we had a wonderful conversation. Yeah, well, for this conversation, we're going to do a deep dive on your background, John. We are going to leave no stone unturned. You yourself have been an educator on the financial markets for some time now. You are an early crypto trader and operator as well, having worked with a number of different platforms and funds. But your journey doesn't start there. Your journey goes all the way back to the traditional financial markets. And the beauty of you being an educator is that you have a website, uh, which is an educational platform called marketmentor.io. And you help people learn about trading and building trading strategies. So we'd love to really start the story there and understand your educational background, right? How does one just write a couple books, start a couple courses, and be an inspiration to aspiring traders? Yeah, well, well, thank you for that that introduction there. So, you know, my journey, I think it's important to talk a little bit about my education first. So I studied renewable energy technology in undergrad, and then I went off to grad school and got super into energy systems and fuels management. So this journey really opened up my eyes to commodity markets, and I had to dig into electricity markets. How is electricity priced? Number one, you have to start there if you think about renewable energy tech. Number two, you have to think about the competing electricity generation uh, sources to renewable energy, which would be natural gas and coal-fired power plants. So now you have to dig into the price of natural gas, the price of coal, and then that leads you to you know the price of oil, the price of gasoline, the price of diesel, et cetera. So I, I got you know, really into markets in my time in, in school. 
And immediately following that, I did a short stint in Silicon Valley. I thought I wanted to be a solar energy financier and figure out how to fund renewable energy projects and change the world. And, and that is still, uh, you know, still an ambition. But I ended up coming back to Chicago, which is where I'm from. And I said to myself, you know what? I want to be a trader. And this is a career in Chicago that, you know, we all kind of know about who are in, in and around markets. So I said, how do I do this? And I started throwing a resume around online that never worked. So I decided to get in the train every day and go down to the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and sit outside the trading pit. <laughs> and I did that for about three months. And I brought a stack of resumes with me every day. And I had many of those days where the resumes I handed out were crumpled up right in front of me and tossed into the garbage and see you later. No problem. I kept persevering. And one day, a trader did take my resume and he handed it to a friend of his and that friend of his gave me a job. So I, my first trading job, I got my CME tag 50 and I was tasked with managing a derivatives book during the Asia and Euro hours. So I was managing gold, copper, silver, platinum, palladium, primarily a little bit of the VIX forward curve as well. And I was doing that overnight on a 12 hour shift, five days a week. And that's really how I got started into professional liquidity provision, professional risk management, and professional execution. Mm -hmm. So that Asia Euro shift is a great learning ground. It gets a little bit slow, but then it speeds up at certain points. So I was really able to fine tune my skills. And that gave me the foundation for you know, really everything that, that came next. Why do you think this person chose you? Someone who hadn't come from a trading background, right? Hadn't interned, or maybe I'm presuming that, but it seemed like this was going to be your first stint trading across a number of different asset classes, basically, or within the That's commodities right. markets. And so taking a look at this one pager CV, what made him say, you know what, John Devine, come on, you know, come on board and we're going to go train you. Yes, that's a great question. I, I still almost ask myself that question today, quite frankly. But I think it was that that story uh, that the trader who handed my resume to my eventual boss uh, prefaced with it was was the perseverance and really the the ability to do whatever it takes, or I should say, the willingness to do whatever it takes to accomplish that goal. Right, and trading at a professional level is really grounded in perseverance. You have to be able to put away the day, move to the next day, whether it was good, bad, the ability to move along the journey despite the obstacles is probably one of the hardest things mm. to master in trading. And that perseverance really gives you an edge in accomplishing that goal. That's so awesome. Also the background, not to go a little further, but the background in markets a bit, you know, understanding commodity markets at a high level, not ever trading them, but being able to talk the language a bit on spreads, for example, or even the forward curve, which we can talk about, which I did have a bit of, of background in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that you are able to humanize how a trader should be, because a lot of the times you just talk about the work that you do, right? Or your PL, what does your book look like? At least that's what crypto Twitter makes out traders to to seem is that the only thing that they care about is making money. And at the end of the day, that's certainly true. And there is skill to that. 
But I think a part of the merit is actually the sort of mental capacity to take on risk and balance that out with a healthy mindset, understanding you won't always have wins, win after win after win. And so a big theme over the course of this conversation will be risk management, right? And we're in a crypto bear market, maybe, I don't know, you can tell me your thoughts on that a little bit later, but especially during a time like this, when I'm sure your desk has managed volatility in the markets, understanding how to navigate the market from a trader's perspective is important, but also being able to communicate what's happening in the markets to counterparties and to clients is a whole nother skill that I'm sure wasn't what you learned from day one in the pit, but certainly something that you developed over time. And what we're going to explore is how big of a transferable skill that is when you are dealing with the crypto markets, you know, a whole different asset class from the commodities markets that you traded really early on. Give us a sense again of what time this was, what year? Yeah, this would be 2015. 2015, okay. Yep, and, and I was moved pretty quick up to the screen. So I ended up on the screen uh, in an electronic venue. And we identified perseverance as a critical attribute to finding success in financial markets. You know, the next one, which is a bit intangible as well, is a desire to solve the puzzle. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is professional trading, when you, when you really get into it, it's not really about the money. It's about solving the puzzle. And when you solve the puzzle, the money tends to flow, but that cannot be the primary motivator. And, you know, we talk about what I was doing in the commodity markets. I was really a liquidity provider at the end of the day. I was presenting bids and offers in the front month futures contract and then all the way down the curve for all those precious metals markets and the VIX. And I ended up getting into, you know, the interest rate market. I made markets at crack spreads for crude oil. I was a trader in the natural gas spreads as well. But what I'm trying to, to capture there is the fascination with the puzzle And how does this all work? And how does it all come together? And once you can grasp the puzzle, now you can think about managing risk. And how do I position myself so that I'm really approaching the market from a responsible perspective and I'm not purely speculating on the direction every day of an asset? Mm -hmm. So that was really a big thing for me when I fell in love with solving the puzzle. And that's going to, as we'll talk about risk management a bit, I think you'll see how this all comes together. Give us an example of a puzzle in the markets, right? For people who don't look at, you know, screens all day or don't even follow what's going on. Give us an example of what that looks like and how that translates into strategy and then into execution and risk management. Certainly. So in futures markets, which are now a a large percentage of daily flows in Bitcoin, you think about that front month futures contract. Like right now we're in June. As I currently speak with you, it's June 3rd. So that's the front month. But now you have futures markets for Bitcoin to be delivered in July, to be delivered in 
August, set all the way down the curve, right? So a an example of a puzzle is how do I take the front month futures contract, bid and offer for Bitcoin, and how do I create a price for July? How do I create a bid and an offer for July? And then how do I create a bid and an offer for August? You know, going all the way down to December 2020-22. How do I create a bid and an offer for Bitcoin priced to be delivered in December 2022? And that's an entire journey. I wrote a book on that journey. And, you know, the reason I wrote the book in the first place wasn't even to publish the book. It was to get the puzzle out of my mind. Because once these puzzles enter your mind, they tend to stay there. And so I, I decided I'm going to put everything in my mind on paper. And it took me about a year to do that. And once I did, I realized that I had a book here with content that had not yet been put into the public domain. And the book is centered around triangle arbitrage, really. And if your curiosity is heightened by that, I highly suggest you take a look at that book. It's extremely powerful stuff for those who are curious. But to conclude on that thought, once you have a base puzzle and you can solve it, another puzzle presents itself, right? And in my journey, that next puzzle was options. Okay, so now we've talked about spot markets, We've talked about futures markets and the next real frontier for a trader is options and, you know, learning how to solve that puzzle. And then with options, you can really start to get into some serious professional strategies on yield, but more importantly on risk management. And that's, you know, in the past three years, let's call it, that's the journey that institutional Bitcoin has taken. Bitcoin was a spot market asset mm -hmm. to begin with. You would go to an exchange and you would purchase Bitcoin. You would either leave that on exchange or you'd be a self-custody agent for your own assets, right? And then the market went to perpetual swaps where you could now trade Bitcoin, but you're not actually trading Bitcoin, you're trading in a derivative of Bitcoin price. Then the market went to, okay, we have spot, we have perpetuals. Now there's, now can we lend and borrow against our Bitcoin? Okay. Once you have a lending and borrowing market, that's when a futures market becomes super interesting. So go from lend, borrow to futures, and then you have futures. Now the options markets can be built. And from there, all the strategies from traditional finance can be redeployed in Bitcoin just as if it was another any other asset from the legacy mm. world. Okay, let's go back to the legacy world a bit to talk about what did it look like for you to build a futures contract from scratch at the CME? Mm. I can yes. bake a cookie from scratch, maybe on my best day. <laughs> I have no idea what that means when you're talking about a financial instrument, right? So, what are the ingredients there? Yes. So you're talking about the next leg of my journey. So to wrap up that first part of where I went to the CME, handed my resume out, got hired, 
learned the puzzles, had, had a lot of success. And the next step I took was trying to revisit my renewable energy background in a sense. And I joined a company that was working on environmental products. So we were working on renewable energy credits in solar energy and wind energy, hydroelectric, geothermal generation. We were working on low carbon fuel standard markets in California, California cap and trade, regional greenhouse gas initiative markets on the East Coast. This is all environmental product ESG type marketplaces for people to offset emissions or to, uh, to buy renewable energy credits so they can source electricity from renewable sources. But to get to the point, I was tasked with building a new market for a product called methanol. And methanol is a derivative of natural gas, and it's used as a catalyst in the production of biodiesel. So to go back to the CME, the CME group has, you know, biodiesel, they have a soybean oil futures contract, and they have a heating oil contract as well, something called the boho spread, the soybean oil, heating oil Mm. spread. And that is currently how uh, natural gas producers were hedging methanol exposure. Technically, it was not a it's not a good hedge. So, if we want to incentivize the production of methanol in a greater scale, so that we can bring costs down for biodiesel producers to buy that methanol and create their biodiesel, the market needed a futures contract to hedge. So, my task was to build the futures contract for FOB Houston delivered methanol. And that process begins with the CFTC. So you have to create uh, contract specifications in tandem with the exchange. So, you know, first present, what do we think this contract looks like? What is the size of the, how many barrels of methanol are going to be in that contract? What are going to be the expiration dates? Who is going to be the reference price for methanol in the physical methanol reference price? That all has to be sorted. And once you get on the same page with the exchange in terms of contract specs, then you have to get it approved by the regulators at the CFTC. So contract specs, approval, then you can have the contract launched, which we successfully accomplished that. And then from there, you're tasked with creating liquidity. And how do you create liquidity? Well, you have to go out to the market, natural buyers and sellers of this product, and let them know that they can manage their risk. So that was part of what I was doing as well. We were, you know, creating bids and offers on the futures contract and then building it from there. And that's really the life cycle of how a futures contract gets created and listed. The same exact process happened in 2017 with the Bitcoin futures contract. And to finalize the thought, that's really the timestamp in Mm. my mind when that Bitcoin futures contract got listed at the CME of when this asset class could no longer be ignored by legacy market participants. All roads lead back to risk management, I feel like. Okay, so we have a really good understanding now, I think, of your experience with traditional markets. We kind of took a little caveat and talked about the evolution of crypto as you've seen it across spot, 
futures and options. Now, if we zoom out a little bit and we focus in now on risk management, how has that felt different? Risk management for the commodities markets and trading that versus crypto? And then maybe we can go into even from a more micro level, look at how risk management differed in the early days, right? Trading Bitcoin and Ethereum versus now where you have long tail of assets that you have to manage risk for. It's not just these two majors anymore. So if you'd like to, if we can start there, that would be great. Yeah, I think that's a great place to begin. So just to continue along the journey, you know, following the methanol futures contract that was built and deployed and and my time spent in environmental products, market making. I was then hired by uh, the world's leading Ethereum hedge fund, and I was hired as an execution trader. And they were really focused on, you know, on risk management and, you know, how can we, the goal was really to be a bridge for professional capital to enter Ethereum with a, um, you know, a very well-defined execution protocol. And that's where the light bulb really kind of went off for me that, you know, this asset class and for, for time frame perspective, I'm talking 2019. So that's when the light bulb really went off for me that as crypto matures and professional capital comes into the space, they are not going to resemble the actions of the early crypto participants. They are going to be much more conservative in their approach and they're going to feel more comfortable entering the space if they're executing along the premise of a more traditional approach to managing a position and not just buying and holding and hoping the market goes up. Right. So from, you know, from that seat, it really became clear to me that the the next leg for crypto was going to be the institutionalization of the asset, which I think we have seen and the demand for more sophisticated market structures. So I guess that, that really leads me to the next part of my journey, which is I ended up leaving the hedge fund I was trading at and joining Blockfills, which was a counterparty to me when I was trading for the hedge fund. And Blockfills really stuck out because it was a team. It's a trading technology company and a liquidity provision company as well. So the team is really built with guys who are all from the legacy world. And their vision was very much aligned with mine that the next step is options and basis trading and delta neutral strategies, etc. So that's really why I ended up making that switch to position myself to be a proponent of risk management strategies and also a venue to to execute those strategies for eligible contract participants. And the, the second, if you can refresh me on that second, just how I can frame it best. For that yeah, no, I mean, part. this this second part, we can really continue on very naturally, I think, which is just about risk management of the markets that we're in now, right? in crypto. I mean, why don't you just give us your take on how the crypto markets are doing? I'm sure that's top of mind for our listeners because 
sometimes all you can think of, wow, is we're in a bear market. Clearly, that's what the headlines are telling us. So give us your take of what you're seeing, you know, whether this be a personal take or one from the Blockfills desk. Yeah, certainly. I'll give you a personal take on it. And although this asset class is very, very young, it's been through multiple cycles, multiple bullish cycles and multiple bearish cycles. And if you talk about Bitcoin specifically, those cycles have tended to line up with the block reward having schedule. And I think what we're seeing in the current environment is a lot of macro events are they're causing more speculative assets. And I hate to use that word, but they're causing more speculative assets to to reprice. And I, I believe that is being driven by, you know, a lack of a marginal buyer. We had a massive run in crypto following the COVID crash, as I'll say, from March 2020, when Bitcoin traded down to 3800 Ethereum printed $99 on that crypto crash. And from there, we just had a massive run. We had people who were at home. For the, you know, oftentimes for the first time in a while on extended basis, those who work. So they had to divert their attention to something. And I think it was a perfect opportunity for, for those market participants to start educating themselves on the asset class and then participating. And that's when we saw this just massive run for Bitcoin to the mid 60s, right? And Ethereum traded above 4,000. So I like I do like to zoom out when we're talking about the current market state. Bitcoin is trading around $30,000, which is more than a 50% decline from the all-time high, but it's still an 8x from the COVID crash low. So that's important to hold that perspective. Now to go on that point we're certainly in a cycle shift. I mean, that that bull run from last year and a bit beyond has definitely shifted, you know, obviously at this point. And what I think we saw, especially the second half of, or I, the better part of 2021, we saw a lot of crypto assets come into play. We saw, you know, the Solanas of the world, the avalanches of the world. I can continue down the list, go on tremendous runs as well. And a lot of people, from my perspective, were, were trend chasing. They were seeing these assets massively outperform and they had the FOMO, you know, to use a, a <laughs> one of the crypto Twitter terms, I guess, it is... There was a lot of marginal demand for crypto assets in 2021 that really was not educated on what they were buying. They were trend chasing. So the market is very good at humbling that behavior. And because the market is not designed to be a casino, it's designed to find the fair value of an asset class. So when you start to see froth come into a marketplace, especially a newer market, such as the broader crypto ecosystem, the market is very good at humbling that behavior. And I think we're witnessing that today. This is also 
true in stocks and true in commodities and true in currencies. But I think the what's unique about this moment in time is that it's providing a reason for investors to get educated on what they're participating in and really whittle down their portfolio to specific crypto assets that they want to be a part of because they have educated themselves on the protocol. They believe in the underlying mission of the protocol. And that's, I believe, taking place right now. People don't educate themselves when markets are making new highs. They typically, I'm saying that broadly speaking. So this market cycle is an education cycle, in my humble opinion. And it's also going to, we're going to find a, I mean, a lot of these assets are not going to reemerge, quite frankly. You know, we've seen the high in a lot of these assets. I don't think we've seen the high in Bitcoin or Ethereum or some of these other layer one protocols that are coming into play. But a lot of these assets that were really speculative tools and almost gambling, to say it lightly, it, you know, likely don't recover from from this education cycle. Would you say we're in a crypto bear market right now? Yes, I would. And so now let me let me take that opportunity to pivot to some of the strategies that that professional capital are deploying during this bear market. And really the professional capital is deploying these strategies even in bull markets. And many of these strategies are are actually more effective during bull markets. But let's Let's try to frame this in a very simple, simple way. I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about a few things here. Number one, I'm going to talk about lending and borrowing. Number two, I'm going to talk about basis trading via the futures markets. And number three, I'm going to talk about utilizing options markets to defend your portfolio or to generate yield. So on that first point, you have Bitcoin holders or crypto holders, I should say, and these assets are not, they're obviously, we're in a downtrend. So people are saying, well, how can I put this asset to work? And I think this is where we've seen a lot of participation in the lending and borrowing markets or in the, the deposit market on the retail side. So there's a number of venues where you can go deposit your Bitcoin or deposit your Ethereum or your stable coin, and you can generate a yield. So I think there's a lot of education taking place right now on those types of venues. And I believe that lever to pull is becoming much more, the market's becoming much more comfortable with lending assets to, to receive a yield. So that's the lending and borrowing side. Instead of just watching your asset go up and down, you can deposit for yield or you can lend unsecured in some manner and create a yield. The next point to cover there is delta neutral strategies, which means I'm not taking a position on direction. I'm looking for yield in the forward curve. And this goes back to what I was talking about at the beginning of the conversation about the front month futures contract, the back month all the way down, right? So I think I had used an example when I was talking about the puzzle. How do you figure out a price for July Bitcoin or for August Bitcoin or all the way down. Well, one way to do it is to buy spot Bitcoin and then sell forward. 
So if I buy, if I'm a holder of Bitcoin, I can show an offer in July Bitcoin, Bitcoin to be delivered in July. But if I'm going to show an offer in that market, I'm not going to show an offer at the price I bought it at. I'm going to try to sell forward for a little bit of profit. And we call that type of a market contango, where the futures markets are trading at a premium to spot. So in a contango market, which Bitcoin, generally speaking, is often in contango, you can take your Bitcoin and you can sell it forward in the futures market and generate a yield. And that strategy is very powerful from, from a risk management perspective as you're delta neutral. And just a sidestep, a touch, the basis trade was really a catalyst for these large legacy institutions to really take a hard look at Bitcoin. When futures were starting to trade, and we can go pretty far back, but let's use the CME listing as our date. So end of 2017. And now there's multiple venues. I'm not talking CME venue specifically, but using that date as our starting point. Many of the venues where you could trade futures did not have an offer. There was not many people willing to sell forward. And what that did is it, it made the price of forward Bitcoin significantly higher than spot Bitcoin to the point where, because there was so much demand for people to trade on these derivatives, but there was no one willing to sell it. So the forward curve ended up steepening to where the basis trade, buy spot, sell forward, was annualizing north of 25%. Okay, and that was due to having a lack of liquidity in futures. So the legacy financial institutions, they ended up identifying this and they came in pretty heavily, I would say, in this a year ago, you know, let's, let's say a year and a half ago. And they started offering forward down the futures curve and then more and more people started to catch wind of the trade. And that's a big piece of this institutionalization puzzle is that basis trade, buy spot, sell forward. Okay, so that's being done right now in this bear market, although the yields have tightened up mm. significantly to where basis trade might be annualizing 7% right now, which is gonna find, you know, be more in line with that institutional lend right. borrow yield, really. So that, that's how the forward curve and lend borrow kind of line up So if together. I can just pause there for, a second, right? Because this basis trade, as you say, has been so popular. And obviously, markets shift yeah. between contango and backwardation, but it's primarily been in contango, as you nicely, you know, explained to us how we've been in this mid to long term bull market, really, right? Since the COVID crash. And so, in this environment where we're still in contango, but you know, at risk of maybe going into backwardation, what then happens to yields mm -hmm. at that point? And what if that opportunity compresses, no longer exists, and institutional investors are trying to look for yield elsewhere? Where do they go? You know, that's a great point. We have not really seen sustained backwardation in Bitcoin since the emergence of a real derivatives market. So it's hard to say, you know, like if Bitcoin went into backwardation, 
it would only be logical that lending and borrowing yields would collapse. So your your Bitcoin on deposit that's now yielding maybe 4% or 3.5%, if it's just on deposit at a venue, that would go to zero. And the institutional lending and borrowing market would go from 6 7% annualized to you know a touch over zero. So I'd be... Based on the market dynamics of Bitcoin, I'd be a bit surprised to see sustained backwardation because there would eventually be arbitrage where I could borrow Bitcoin basically for free or almost, and I could sell it on the spot market, and then I could buy forward at a discount. And that that arbitrage would likely bring the market back into Contango, where the futures are trading above spot or it would trade flat where spot and futures are equally priced. To back up just a touch, when you have the basis trade on and you've bought spot and you've sold forward, if the market goes into backwardation, that's a good thing because for that position, because you are long the spot asset and you're short the futures contract. And if the futures market starts trading below spot, that's exactly what your position is, is lined up for. So, and given the fact that so many people have taken advantage of this basis trade in the past 12 to 18 months and are still doing so today, if Bitcoin went backwardated, there'd be a natural bid to close that, that contango basis. Okay. Yes. If beauty that, of being an educator made a ton of sense. Right. So yeah. <laughs> now we get into, I think, the options side of the picture, right? And talk yeah. about yield strategies that at this point in time are more for hedging purposes than continued speculative purposes. So yeah, let's dive in there and talk about what people are looking to hedge and how they're wanting to do that. Certainly. And this is where, you know, this is where it gets really fun. So options are often ignored because they seem complicated and they can be complicated, quite frankly. I mean, the mathematics used in pricing options contracts is not for the faint of heart. Thankfully, we don't need to really be mathematicians to understand the benefits of these contracts. So to start at a very high level, just a quick primer, a call option is the right to buy the underlying asset at a predetermined price up to an expiration date of the contract. So for example, Bitcoin's trading at 30,000 and we're in the month of June. So there's gonna be a market for call options for 40K Bitcoin, 45, 50, 55, 60 through the end of June. And you can buy or sell those call options. If I'm a buyer of a call option, I'm speculating that Bitcoin is gonna rise to my strike price. So if I bought the June 50K Bitcoin call option, I'm expressing that I think Bitcoin is gonna trade towards 50K. And if I do, the right to own that asset, which is the call option at 50K, is going to appreciate in value. When Bitcoin's trading at 30K, 
the price to own Bitcoin at 50K is very low. But if Bitcoin starts to trade higher this month, the price of that 50K call option is going to increase in value. And if Bitcoin trades over 50K, that's actually that option becomes technically a spot position because you have the right to buy Bitcoin at 50K. So that's the buy side perspective. If I'm an owner of Bitcoin and I'm a hodler, I can sell a speculator that call option. I can say, oh, you want to buy the right to own my Bitcoin at 50K in the next 30 days, and we're currently trading at 30K, I will sell you that right to buy my Bitcoin at 50K in the next 30 days. And that call buyer is going to pay you for that option. And now this is what we call a covered call. It's a very, very straightforward strategy deployed in stocks for many, many years and in commodities and in foreign exchange. But this is a way to create yield from your Bitcoin. I hold Bitcoin. I sell call options to speculators every month. And I put that money in my pocket and that's my yield. Now, what's the risk? When you sell a call option, the risk or in the case of a covered call option where you actually own the Bitcoin or the underlying asset, I call it opportunity cost. The opportunity cost of selling a call option is that you don't get to participate in any of the gains above the strike price. So if I sell a 50K strike call option that expires at the end of June, and Bitcoin trades to 55K at the end of June and settles there, I have to sell my Bitcoin at 50K to the person who bought my call option. I don't get to sell my Bitcoin at the spot price of 55 since I've already told the options buyer that I'll sell him my Bitcoin at 50K. I'm going to pause there yeah, to see if yeah, all it does. that makes sense. I want to go back to the buyer's perspective. If I were a speculator... Why wouldn't I just put in a bunch of limit orders and buy from 30K up to 50K? Why would I want to purchase a contract, you know, with a strike price of 50K? You know? Yeah, it's a great question. So leverage. So if you, let's think about, let's use, this is not going to be true market prices. Let's use a very just, let's say the 50K call option for June. Bitcoin is currently trading at 30K. The 50K call option right now is trading for $1, let's assume. If Bitcoin starts to trade from 30K to, let's say, 38 or 40, and, I, and pretty quick, like over the course of a couple of days, that 50K call option is going to go from $1 to $10 or $1 to $8. It's going to appreciate in value at a higher velocity than just that spot market appreciation. And that is why speculators like to buy call options when they think the asset is going higher because they can get a higher return with less capital being deployed to the position. Okay. So for capital efficiency purposes, not using up everything that's on the existing balance sheet, but taking on that aspect of leverage, which 
is more prominent now in crypto because of the derivatives markets on, you know, across OTC venues, exchange venues is much more mature, right, than when you first started out. Correct. Correct. A lot more mature. That that rate of change has been extremely impressive to witness, you know, really from, you know, I go back, I use that CME launch as my line in the sand. Prior to CME launching a futures contract, the derivative space for crypto and broadly speaking was very immature. And from, you know, 2018 forward, the market has matured extremely fast. And then it was put on hyperdrive in 2020 or the latter part of 2019 when institutions started taking a hard look. And then, mm-hmm. pri- you know, after the COVID I crash. feel like I'm getting like a nice lesson here. So we talked about covered calls. What's next? Yep. Yeah. So, so I like to call that covered call strategy just to keep it fun. I like to call that the optimized yield. So I own Bitcoin, I sell covered calls and I create a yield and I can do that every single month for as long as I own my Bitcoin. And that strategy, by the way, as I mentioned, is very popular in, in legacy markets. Now, number two, The second strategy I want to talk about, number two, is what I like to call the optimized HODL. And I'm using the acronym from my friends on crypto Twitter who are fantastic in coming up with catchy ways to explain interesting concepts. So HODL or or hold on for dear life is the way of positioning yourself as a a long-term believer in the underlying crypto asset that you are purchasing. And it's most often associated with Bitcoin. So the Bitcoin community, from a a zoomed out perspective, many of the early participants in Bitcoin will never sell their Bitcoin or they will only sell enough to survive in this world with things that require dollars. So we call them hodlers. They are holding on for dear life for the foreseeable future. Well, that's great. And I'm, I'm a complete supporter of that perspective. But I do think something's missing from that approach. And what's missing is managing the volatility of the underlying asset, in this case, Bitcoin. Bitcoin is an extremely volatile asset. It goes up and down multiple percentage points a day, and that's a slow day. A big day for Bitcoin is 10% plus moves up or down. That's extremely volatile. So if I am positioning myself to own this asset class for the next decade, let's say, or even for the next half decade, it's in my best interest to structure risk management or yield around that position. So we covered the yield part of it with the covered call. If I'm going to hold this asset, I might as well generate a yield in the meantime. But to create a risk management profile around that position, I can add a second leg to that trade. And this goes back to my puzzle, right? So we talked about what call options were. Call options are the right to own an underlying asset at a predetermined strike price up to a predetermined expiration date. The other type of options contracts are called puts. And put options are the right to sell the underlying asset at a predetermined strike price through a predetermined expiration date. So if call options, buyers of call options think that the underlying asset is going higher and they want to 
buy call options. If you think the underlying asset is going lower, you want to buy put options. Put options, if you are an owner of a put option, you have the right to sell the underlying asset at a predetermined strike price through predetermined expiration date. So if the underlying asset goes lower, the owner of a put option makes money. And if the market goes below the strike of that put, let's use, for example, Bitcoin's at 30K. Let's say I buy a 25K strike put. If Bitcoin were to trade below 25K at expiration, as the owner of a put option, I have the right to sell my Bitcoin at 25K, even though the market's trading at 24. Okay, so... I'll pause real quickly there. Is that an okay overview of put options? Great so far. Okay, perfect. Now, as we talked about buyers of call options, speculators who think the asset's going higher, we talked about the covered call as a seller of that call option to create a yield. Well, there's also a buyer and seller of put options. So with the optimized HODL, I'm going to work in step number one, which is selling the covered call. I sell a call, I take a yield, I put that yield in my pocket, or I take that yield and buy whatever put option I can for free. We call this a zero cost collar. So now I am short a call option, but I'm long a put option and I haven't paid anything out of my pocket. I financed my protection by selling the call option. So now I have an interesting position. I'm long this asset, Bitcoin. I'm gonna be long for 10 years. But every month I sell call options either for yield or to finance protection. In the scenario I'm gonna describe to you, we're talking about the optimized HODL, which is using the call option to finance the put protection. Now, every month I have upside exposure to my call strike. So if I sold the 50,000 call for June, I have upside to 50,000 for the month of June. And then I took my premium and bought a put option. Let's say I bought the 25K put. Now I have protection at 25K. I know for sure I can sell my Bitcoin at 25,000 for the next 30 days. That's an extremely powerful position for someone who's trying to express that they would like to own this asset, this highly volatile asset for the next decade. Upside is limited, correct, to the strike price that you sold the call at, but in return, I get downside protection and the ability to sleep at night. I'll pause there. So would you say more people are knocking on your door now for this zero cost caller? strategy because we're in a bear market or were people already preparing <laughs> because they yes. saw, oh, wow, the rally is a bit overextended. And then the whole Terra Luna situation just obviously accelerated. You know, they're thinking about risk management in this way. Yes, that's so this is where this is where I always find the human element of markets. When things are going well and the market's rising, and people are making money, they often don't want to think about risk management. So 
when Bitcoin was going through its massive bull run, from my perspective, I was talking about these strategies. Not many people wanted to listen. The people who did want to listen were Bitcoin miners. So a Bitcoin mining company, they naturally generate Bitcoin when they validate Bitcoin block transactions and receive the block reward. And now they build a balance sheet of Bitcoin. And they were very happy in mid 2021 as every Bitcoin market participant was. But the sophisticated players started saying, you know, wait a sec. We now have this asset that is free floating on our balance sheet. It's done very well. But how do we protect those gains without selling the Bitcoin? We still want to have upside exposure because we're not sure if this market goes to 100K. I'm talking in mid-2021. People thought it was going to go to 100K. So they were saying to themselves, how do we hold this balance sheet position, but we do it in a responsible manner, you know, to the company, but also to the investors of that company, right? And almost like a fiduciary responsibility. How do we start to look at this balance sheet as, you know, really something we can manage? So the people who were putting on these zero cost collars in the bull run were miners. They were really the first ones to step in for size and defend their balance sheet. They were selling, and I'll take this opportunity to throw something else in there that I don't want to confuse too too much with, but there's something called skew. And skew is asking the question of, are call options more expensive relative to put options or are put options protection more expensive relative to call options? When you have a bull market, call options are more expensive than protection because no one really wants protection. The entire market wants to speculate that the asset is going higher. And the way to do that is by buying call options. So skew starts to favor calls. And when you talk about this methodology of selling calls and buying puts, it's really optimized to be put on when the market is doing well. So we had miners who were saying, wait a sec, you're telling me that the I can sell the 100K call option for December 2021 and I can buy the 50K put for free? And I was explaining to them, yes, you can do this trade. This is when Bitcoin was trading around 60,000. I said, you can do this trade because no one wants to buy protection right now. The 50K put option is so cheap relative to the 100K call. It's equally priced to the 100K call, but that, that skew with Bitcoin at 60K, you know, I'm only going down $10,000 to my put strike, right? But I'm going up 40K to my call strike. Okay, so that really accelerated the conversations and helped with these miners to make the decision to do some balance sheet risk management. Then the hedge funds identified it and they said, wait a sec, we've done very well on this spot position, but call options are so much more expensive than put options. I can sell the 100K call and buy the 50K put zero cost 
for December 2021 expiration. Okay, so then the hedge funds started putting that on. And really, when you think back on it, that is what you know kind of signals cycle highs and lows. You know, when skew gets so inverted to the call side, it's really a market internal that's flashing red and saying, this market is way too hot. This market is due for a correction. All right. And then now where we are today, we've gone through that correction and we're starting to see skew flip. So now today, put options are more expensive than call options. Right. And a lot of the serious traders are staring at that skew and they're trying to figure out when is that skew going to get to an extreme where now I can do the reverse of what I was not to get too crazy here, but when skew gets inverted, well, now I can sell puts and buy calls, you know, and give myself a leverage position that way. I'm, I'm talking that's a little bit more sophisticated and higher level, not risk management, but that's what's happening currently. Skew has flipped from favoring calls to favoring puts. And now the market internals are saying maybe we're a little bit extended on this pullback. I'll leave it at that. That's so fascinating. I mean, truthfully speaking, I wonder if because of that leading indicator, if I can call it that, right, this sort of put call skew ratio, whether on the desk, Terra Luna aside, again, no one really saw that coming at the pace that it did. But apart from that, I wonder if your desk was looking at this market and saying, we're due for a correction at some point in the next two quarters. I wonder if that was part of your conversations with clients, you know, maybe outside of Bitcoin miners who are in the game because they are hodlers at the end of the day, right? I mean, like that's their whole balance sheet, apart from cash, of course. Yes. But with other types of institutions, were you already having those conversations, call it two months ago? Yes, yes. So the miners really kind of led the way on, you know, from my perspective anyway, I'm putting that that structure on, that's selling a call and buying a put and managing the balance sheet. And then next were the, the sharp hedge funds who, you know, really had that legacy background and almost couldn't believe that skew was so inverted. And they said, you know what, we're going to sell that skew, right? We're going to sell the call by the put. It's way too inverted. So that, that was really the two who led the way. But then what, what started happening, and I'm going back farther than two months, I'm going to go back like a year ago. We had some late participants, some late professional capital that said, you know what, we have to get involved here, but I don't want to just buy Bitcoin at 60,000 or at 55,000 and close my eyes. So they would come to us and say, we need to be involved. We need to own this asset, but we need to protect ourselves. And so they were the next group that really put that position on as well, that late professional capital. So they, those types of guys were buying Bitcoin at elevated prices, but they were protected. So they have the right to sell Bitcoin at 50K when this whole thing went lower. The next move was the crypto native funds that maybe didn't have operators that were really entrenched in legacy markets. Many of the crypto native funds were were built by guys who who were early into the crypto scene and they, they had a massive amount of assets to the point where they could pool them and create a fund. They were the from my view again, 
they were kind of the last in line to really start to say, I want to hedge because it's kind of against that, that crypto native philosophy in a sense where, you know, really it's about up only quite frankly, and getting to the point where you kind of capitulate and say, okay, I do need to manage my risk. Now those entrants I think are, are very much in play and they're educated on it and they're looking and those types of firms will be putting on these strategies on the next cycle. Yeah, that's fascinating the way you sort of brought us through, you know, of course, the miners who are long-term hodlers, but don't really take on much more risk than that because they're really focused on Bitcoin. And I think when you talk about crypto funds, part of the issue or challenge rather is that their portfolio extends beyond Bitcoin and Ethereum. They extend out to the unis and the sushis and the apes, quite frankly. And that's the question, right? Like we've been focusing just on Bitcoin right now, you know, this entire conversation, basically, although the risk management practices extend, of course, way beyond that. But the question is, when you talk about a heavily diversified crypto portfolio, how do you do that on a holistic basis when you don't have options markets going down the curve, allowing you to protect yourself you know, for this type of market that we're in right now, where do they go for that type of risk management? Yeah, that's, you've really brought us to the present moment with that question. And as we get further out the long tail on the asset spectrum, there's never going to be derivative professional options markets for these nascent crypto assets because there's not enough institutional participation for market makers to create options markets for those assets. But if you talk about the top 20 by market cap, I think there's going to be options and futures markets for every single one of them. And I think that's where this is all going. So when I was working at the hedge fund, the Ethereum hedge fund, and my light bulb kind of went off, it really went off in the sense that If crypto assets are going to be part of portfolios for the next 10, 20, 100 years, the ones that will survive will have robust derivatives markets for risk management purposes. Because without derivatives markets, it's very hard for legacy capital to come in and take a position. They oftentimes have responsibility to to the pool of investors to manage risk and not just buy an asset outright and hope it goes higher. There has to be some type of strategy. So from a market making perspective, in the last year, we have seen an explosion in Bitcoin options trading. We've seen an explosion in Ethereum options trading. That was really the next big market for options. And now we are starting to see a very robust market develop for Solana, for Avalanche, for Polkadot, Algorand, Filecoin. I could kind of keep going, but where where I am going with that is as we work through this cycle, this bear market cycle, and we have education come back into play and people become more confident in the assets they're holding and they get rid of the stuff they don't want to hold anymore. And the market works its way through this churn, I'll call it. 
we're going to see the top 20 by market cap shift again. And that's going to happen on the next cycle higher is that top 20 by market cap is going to reposition for the next cycle. And aside from your Solana's avalanches, polka dots, whatever assets do break into that top 20 on this next cycle, nearly all of the institutional participation there will want to be able to hedge and that will incentivize market makers such as block fills to create options markets for those underlying assets. The tail assets will likely never really have robust asset, robust mm. options markets unless it comes through a DeFi protocol. But the top 20 by market cap will be served by professional institutional market makers such as block fills to institutional capital. Wow. I hope people who have tuned in up until this point feel like they've gotten you know, a full market rundown, but also just a great 101 take on risk management, because I certainly did and appreciate you so much for taking the time to walk us through your thinking, right? As someone who's running a desk and has to talk to clients all day long, to give us a sense of, you know, how we should be thinking about the markets, not just the bear market, but in a future bull market as well, what to anticipate and how to protect yourself and not just say, I want to buy insurance after the fire has actually burned everything. So super appreciate that. As we wrap up here, right. John would love to just open up the platform to you and you know, have you talk about something that's on your mind that you're working on. Maybe it's focused on trading, maybe it's not, but you know, something that you'd love to share with our audience. Yeah, certainly. And before I wrap the risk management side, there is a third point I want to cover. So, and then I'll go into some, some of my thoughts on broader spectrum. You know, I talked about that optimized yield, which is the covered call. I talked about the optimized HODL, which is utilizing covered calls to finance protection. In this market, I think it's important for me to bring up the third point there, which I labeled the optimized. I love these games. (laughs) And this again, I'm borrowing from, (laughs) I'm borrowing from crypto Twitter and how they spice things up. But FOMO, fear of missing out. I think that's where, where a lot of people got caught in this last run. They had FOMO. So I will finalize my risk management spiel with this thought. So I talked to you about selling a call option for yield, financing protection by buying a put option with the proceeds from the covered call. When I buy a put option, there's a seller of that put option, right? When I buy a put option, I have the right to sell the underlying asset at that strike price through expiration. The seller of that put option has the obligation to buy the asset from me at that strike price, right? So if I do a 25K strike put, I buy it, I got the right to sell it at 25K, the seller of that put has to buy my Bitcoin at 25K, right? So if Bitcoin goes to 20K this month, they still have to buy it from me at 25, okay? So that that seller of the put, that's my third bullet point, which is optimized FOMO. Instead of just buying Bitcoin right here, 30K, Let's see if this is the bottom. I can actually sell put options. And let's use 25K as an example. I can sell the 25K put option, generate a yield because someone is buying that put from me. And my risk 
is that I have to own Bitcoin at 25K if it ever gets there. In the meantime, I'm collecting a yield, right? As we see if this market churn is the bottom, I want to get paid to wait. Instead of just buying Bitcoin at 30K and seeing what happens, I'm going to sell the 25K put option, collect a yield. Worst case scenario, I buy Bitcoin at 25K, but I want to buy the asset anyway. You know, that's the, the underlying principle. You want to own the asset anyway. So selling puts, I'll wrap up my risk management, can be more advantageous in a choppy slash downward trending market than just taking a spot position and trying to call the bottom. So I'll leave it on that thought. I just want, I did want to cover that one to wrap and up. And you my, see people my, doing my a combination there. of these things, right? It's not just, I only want a zero cost caller. Oh, now I want to buy a call or sell a put. It's a combination of things that work together based on mm-hmm. someone's portfolio of assets, right? Certainly. Certainly. I mean, this all can be tailored to what you're trying to express and what your, if your intention is to express protection for your portfolio, that can be structured. If your intention is to express the ability to buy the asset at a lower price than what it's trading today, that can be expressed. So yes, these are all put in combinations and they're tailored and one more point as well, of the, of the trader. you can structure it across different tenors, so like time periods as well, right? You can be maybe short-term bearish and yes. structure something that reflects that expression, but be long-term bullish. And so long as mm-hmm. there is a market for it, probably Bitcoin and Ethereum, maybe you have a more bullish take. Do you see people doing that as well? Yes. So what I see... This is when you talk about duration of the option. So when I talk about that expiration, options, you can trade overnight options, to be quite frank. You can trade weekly options, quarterly, yearly. I like to trade options that that are one month for crypto, that is. And the reason I like to do that is this asset is so volatile that it's very hard to look farther out if you're trading and managing risk than a month. It's difficult. So when I'm putting on these structures, I put them on on a monthly basis to give myself flexibility. If I'm a covered call seller to generate yield and I'm selling the 50K call option for June, I don't really want to sell the 50K call option on the quarterly or for three months out. Because what if Bitcoin rips this month and just takes out all the shorts and starts trading at 45. Well, now I'm locked into a short call at 50, right? But if I keep my time frame short, I can be nimble in how I express my opinion on the market and my sentiment okay. and my objective. So okay. that's super interesting. Taylor is the expiration. Right. What else are you thinking about? What else are you working on? Well, you know, I think this is where I'd like to just talk a little bit about, you know, we're in the education cycle or we're in an education cycle for crypto. And I think a lot of people are hitting the books, so to say, and asking the question, what does this protocol, what does this layer one blockchain like Ethereum, what does it accomplish? What does it do? How is it going to impact the lives of all of those who are participating with the protocol in a positive way to the point where 
it becomes a utility to the internet, right? Like a settlement layer. And we've seen a lot of use cases pop up, especially in DeFi, where if I want to go buy a crypto asset, but I don't want to deal with an intermediary, I can go to a protocol like Uniswap and I can buy an asset and I can settle that asset to my wallet and self-custody, right? That's actually a revolutionary concept and really a revolutionary implementation of liquidity provision. Same thing with lending and borrowing. I can go to a DeFi protocol and I can lend my asset without having, you know, without knowing who the other side of it is, number one, but also not interacting with an institution. You're really interacting with a smart contract in that sense. And whoever is on the other side of that smart contract. So those use cases are now being studied heavily, not just by retail investors, but also by Wall Street. And how is DeFi going to revolutionize finance? That's super interesting. But I think that's interesting to a subset of protocol participants. If you ask mom and pop what their thoughts are on DeFi, unless they are finance professionals, they probably don't have much of an opinion, nor do they really care, quite frankly. DeFi is solving a problem that they're not interested in. But blockchain has shown, layer one blockchains have shown that they can create products that we can all get excited about. And I think this is where you start talking about digital ownership of art and music and video, any type of digital content and using NFTs to define original ownership and define royalty. And that's very interesting to a lot of people. You start talking about having concert tickets that settle on the blockchain or QR codes that are always adjusting every second so you can't screenshot them and that data sits on the blockchain. That's super interesting to a much wider audience. What I'm going to finish up talking about is carbon offset markets, ESG requirements, and renewable energy credits and technology. So going back to the beginning of our conversation, I told you I was super into renewable energy tech, solar energy, wind energy, et cetera. I also told you I studied legacy tech, natural gas, coal, right? Renewable energy has a hard time competing economically with traditional fossil fuel resources. If as a global community, we decide that we would like to transition away from fossil fuel energy to mitigate the impacts of climate change from all the carbon emissions and methane emissions that are emitted from legacy energy generation portfolios and also you know, automobiles, et cetera. We need to find a way to incentivize the economics of solar and wind and geothermal and hydroelectric. And the way we are currently doing that is through markets. We are putting a price on carbon, okay? 
carbon offset markets are being utilized by airlines, for example. American Airlines will fly a plane across from L.A. to New York, and they will go buy carbon offsets from a reforestation project, or there's a myriad of projects that generate carbon offsets. And now American Airlines can say, this flight was carbon neutral, right? Or you have large electricity consumers who go out to the market and buy renewable energy credits, which gives them the claim that their electricity was generated from a source of renewable energy technology, a zero emission source of electricity, right? Okay. To propel that movement forward, we can utilize blockchain technology. And this is actually one of the most fascinating use cases for blockchain technology, because one of the biggest problems with using carbon credits and renewable energy credits to incentivize economic investment in renewable energy tech is the double spend problem. And the double spend problem is what Bitcoin solved. What I mean by that is if you're a renewable energy generator and you create a credit or if you're a a reforestation project and you create a carbon offset credit and you go sell that to the market right now, and it's a pretty good process, but right now you have to go through a registry and make sure that that carbon offset wasn't resold to the market in a double spend fashion, right? where I generated a single carbon offset, I sold it to party A, but then I also sold it to party B because that would just not be proper, right? And that's exactly the problem that Bitcoin solved. It solved the double spend problem, you know, and being able to track exactly where that asset originated and where it settled to, and it cannot settle to multiple endpoints, right? So blockchain is well positioned to propel renewable energy technology and reforestation and carbon offset projects forward and help compete with legacy electricity generation projects by being able to bring confidence to the marketplace that the double spend problem has been solved and also being able to track that metadata of origination to retirement on an immutable public ledger. So that's what I'm extremely excited about. And I will I will finalize that thought by saying we are now seeing Bitcoin miners who do understand that Bitcoin mining is energy intensive. We are now seeing that community say, you know what, maybe our Bitcoin mine should be offsetting their electricity consumption from from legacy generating assets and buy renewable energy credits or carbon offsets to go net zero on their electricity consumption. So that's what's got me extremely excited about the technology, about the ecosystem. And I'm also very excited to see that the Bitcoin mining community is beginning to grasp and starting to implement. Media is going to eat that up because they have loved, loved, loved to harp on that energy inefficient narrative of Bitcoin mining. And so I think the evolution of this narrative, evolution of sentiment rather, and understanding and knowledge within the Bitcoin mining community, Mm -hmm. you know, towards this carbon credits, 
is going to be super interesting. And adding in this element of practicality and utility to crypto is so, so important, you know, in a market where speculation and prices dominate seemingly everything. So during a time like this, it's nice to be able to highlight something that's happening within the Bitcoin ecosystem or crypto ecosystem that usually takes a backseat when markets are ripping. And so, yeah, super appreciate your time on the really? podcast, John. We'll have to do this again. And uh, maybe next time Suda can take the host seat with you and do a deeper dive on trading strategies for that part of our audience. Thanks so much. I'd love to do it. Thank you, Leslie. This has been great.